I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy, or as we say in Ghana, smart is zigzy. <laughs> the Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM's studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally right here in Ghana and in London. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. This week on The Spin, reimagining resistance in the era of number 45 continues. In part one, altars of resistance, prayer and protest from the church to the mosque, refuge and uprisings. In part two, reproductive justice and resistance. What is the state and fate of our sexual health nation under number 45? All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quindero and Glinda Carr. Sofia Quindero is a screenwriter, television producer and novelist. Sofia has published five novels. Her last was Ephraim Secret and her new young adult novel is the critically acclaimed show Improve. Glinda Carr is a political strategist, advocate and co-founder of Higher Heights, a national organization working to elect more black women to political office. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Welcome, Esther. Hello, Esther. Hello, Glinda. Our first discussion, altars of resistance, prayer and protest. Some Christian ministers say, don't protest number 45. Pray for him. Pray for his success. Now is our time to pray for him. Absolutely. This is the, this is the job of the church. Now let the world protest. Mm -hmm. But the job of the church now is to go into prayer and to pray that, number one, he succeeds. Yes. Because if he fails, we have to deal with the consequences as a nation. America is in a place it's never been before, and the Christian has got to be who God's called us to be. Not Democrat, not Republican, right. but kingdom. I don't want us to get caught up in the rigor now, this, this, this protest. Hold people accountable and make them uh, hold their feet to the fire by voting. Yeah. The, the, the protests do nothing but rile up people. It causes people's anger to rise up, and it, and it gives us false sense of involvement. That was Donnie McClurkin. He's a high-profile Christian pastor of the Perfecting Faith Church in Freeport, New York, and he has a huge congregation. He's also a gospel singer who sold 10 million albums. He was speaking there on syndicated radio show Get Up Mornings with Erica Campbell. So while he made headlines calling on Christians to pray, not protest, New York's streets on President's Day came alive as Muslims and non-Muslims protested with a rallying cry, I am a Muslim too, and a refusal to counter fear. Never give in to fear, never give in to the bigotry, and know that we will stand with you, not to the death, but to life. Because today we choose life. As the youth, we grew up in a post-9-11 world and we unconsciously think that the main thing that comes to mind about Islam in America is how it's viewed with fear and hate. 
But whereas we grew up in a Muslim household, we feel love and peace and compassion. As a youth, we all have these identities that we have to balance. For example, me being a Muslim, an Indonesian, an American, a college graduate, a woman, which is not easy, but we're lucky to be that we have a lifelong development for us to be raised here. Where our parents or a generation before us who have immigrated here to put into this abrupt change of living and have to adjust from being a majority to a minority. As a youth, we grew up learning a new stereotype and unfortunately has been ingrained in our minds that the word terrorist and the word bomb and any terror attacks that are occurs are associated with Muslims and it puts the whole religion and over one billion and a half followers under suspicion. I am not afraid because fear is a choice. It is not a fact. Our Muslim brothers and sisters have not only been uh, demonized, but they've been the victims of terrorism. They are the greatest victims of terrorism. Voices from the I Am Muslim 2 rally held in New York City. The rally also included New York's mayor, Bill de Blasio, and brought more than 1,000 people into Manhattan's Times Square. From the streets, back to the altar. Under 45's chaotic leadership, a sanctuary church movement is emerging in the U.S., as it did historically. It's a campaign among organizers and clergy to help undocumented immigrants facing deportation. More than 700 congregations have signed onto the Sanctuary Pledge. The number of participating congregations has doubled since the election, according to Church World Service, an international faith-based organization. New Sanctuary coalitions have popped up in Ohio, Iowa, Wisconsin, and North Carolina. Historically, despite Donnie McClurkin's call for churches to pray, not protest, in the United States, black churches have been sites of resistance. They have been sanctuaries for a people seeking refuge and comfort from the lash. They have been the nurturing ground of revolutionary leadership. One major example is Martin Luther King, who was a reverend. They have been sites of organization, resistance and activism. February 20th is President's Day in the United States. February 21st is the State of the Nation Address in Ghana. So both days in both nations are about presidential leadership. Number 45 has set the world on edge with bigotry that targeted Muslims with a travel ban within his first month of office. It caused chaos across airports in the United States. It provoked fear among millions of people and it set off resistance within religion. Places of worship transformed into altars of resistance as families seek refuge in hallowed halls from hate, masquerading as national security and law and order. So let's talk altars of resistance in the era of number 45. Glinda Carr, let me start with you, your thoughts. I actually don't think it's an either or situation, you know, alter or resist. I am a Christian and an active churchgoer. So I do think if you look at the history of, you know, I'll talk about black churches because that's kind of what I'm most familiar with, from churches being safe havens during the Underground Railroad to the significance of churches during the Civil Rights Movement, that we are in a movement-building moment where our churches, synagogues, and mosques continue to be what they've always been in history, a place where we can gather and have conversations about the current state of our country. We're providing a place for sanctuary, both spiritually and politically. And then it is a place to meet for prayer. If you go back to the civil rights movement, prayer meetings were a central component of the civil rights movement, not only to pray for the direction of 
the civil rights leaders, but the directions of the country and our leaders, but also a gathering place for us to disseminate information. So I did have an opportunity to kind of, I had read a couple of articles about Pastor McClurkin's comments, and yes, he called for kind of the world to protest while the church prays, but he also talked about something I think that's very important that didn't necessarily come across in some of the media coverage, is that it also is a place for us to double down and organize. I do think his personal opinion, if you listen to the radio interview, is that his concern about protest, and I think he doesn't stand alone in this, I've heard my own friend say this, is protest and then what? Oftentimes people see large mass demonstrations, but they feel that it doesn't go past the notion of being disruptive. And be clear, protests and disruptions play a very pivotal role in movement building actions. But We've got to be very careful, and I think we have to go back and look at the successes of the civil rights movement about the role of what protests did. It created awareness. It applied pressure, but it was a piece of a strategy that included then legislative action and restructuring what our democracy looked like. So Pastor McClurk, and everyone gets a chance to have to see it, also talked about doubling down and, and utilizing the church to organize around empowering voters and voters being engaged in next election, which is a piece to this long-term strategy that we need to be in. Resist, apply pressure, advocate, lobby, and then engage a pipeline of leaders to run for office, and then more importantly, prepare our communities to be engaged not only in midterm elections, but we have local elections across this country. So I do think it's not an either-or situation. If you are someone that believes in the power of prayer, regardless of if you're a Muslim, Jewish, or a Christian, that that is a space where you can draw strength. But we also have to determine what role each person plays individually. So that's, you know, members of congregations, but also what will the role of our clergy leaders be in this movement? I think one of the most powerful things when you talk about altar meets protest or resistance is the over 1,000 Yemen bodega owners that closed their bodegas from 12 to 8 in New York last month and protest, but they also knelt down and prayed. It was a powerful moment to watch thousands of Muslims praying, but also, you know, having their voices heard about their concern about this administration. Sofia Quintero. As I was learning more about the sanctuary movement, it immediately brought to mind a quote by Rabbi Abraham Joshua Eshel, who said, in Selma, Alabama, I learned to pray with my feet. And if you look at the history of the Young Lords Party, for example, one of their biggest actions was the takeover church in East Harlem, and that was because the church refused to allow the party to run breakfast programs for the children in the community. So in these times where you have churches proactively choosing to be sanctuaries, and, and they have been for a while, long before the election of 45, that's a wonderfully hopeful sign that we need to see. And they're choosing to be on the right side of history. And as Glinda said, that choice is not a historical for many churches. And it's wonderful that we're talking about this because learning about the sanctuary movement and seeing what churches are doing on the ground and proactively resisting Trump's policies, it's very different than some of the hatefulness that I've witnessed online along the political spectrum. So I think it's really vital that we challenge what we don't want to see, but that we also amplify and champion 
what we do want to see. And so I'm witnessing a lot in social media spaces and in actions that I don't find very helpful is the shaming of people for being Christian. It's a big disconnect for me to expect Christians to take a stand for people of other faiths, like Muslims, while shaming them for theirs and using rhetoric like accusing them of clinging to the oppressor's religion. And, and as Glenda pointed out, that's ahistorical. That shows Christians to be a monolith, and we all know that the monolith is a very dangerous idea to hold on to. And we should really focus on the things that we do want to see and recognize that this has been going on for some time. So this most recent case of Jeanette Vizquera in Denver actually reminded me of the case of Elvira Arellano, and this was back in 2007. And Elvira was an undocumented immigrant from Mexico to Chicago who received deportation orders that would separate her from her son, who was actually born in the U.S. And so she sought and was given sanctuary at the Adalberto United Methodist Church in Humboldt Park. And that's where she stayed for a year, and then she became an activist, and it was actually on her way to give a talk at another church in Los Angeles where she was actually arrested. And because I see he has a policy of not raiding churches and schools, I also see that there's this real tremendous opportunity to grow the sanctuary movement by churches and schools coming together. I live in New York City where the Catholic Archdiocese has been closing dozens upon dozens of its schools. And this is largely because the immigrant communities here in New York City that attend their churches can't afford to pay their school tuition. So many spaces are remaining unused and empty. And anyone who's seen a picture of a detention center can see that they are veering on becoming modern-day internment camps. So one thing that I like to imagine, what if the Catholic Archdiocese were to open these school buildings and turn them into sanctuaries for undocumented immigrants? Quite a lot of them would probably be their own parishioners. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity there for churches and schools to work in mutual alliance. I hear your point about this online shaming around religion. And it always makes me want to say, you know, understand that number 45 and that administration worships at the altar of white supremacy. And it excludes so many of you in so many different ways around intersections of class and specifically poverty, even within what you think is a protected whiteness. And so it heartens me to see these altars of resistance, to see multiple people of faith stepping out to protest what is arguably illegal, what is discriminatory, what is hateful, what is hurtful, and what is harmful. When I think about reimagining resistance, it makes me then want to go beyond that and say, as you said, Glinda, you said it's a both and scenario. And historically, the church has always been both a site of sanctuary and a kind of landscape of resistance. It's been both of those spaces. And so, as you said, Sophia, seeing the bodega owners come out in protest and then kneel down in prayer was a powerful marriage of both of those things. And that I think about as somebody who's sitting in Ghana in going to fight, going out to war, prayer, those rituals, calling on your creator to imbibe you with strength for the coming time that is hard. All of that is part of how we've always prepared for trying time. So I've never thought it's antithetical to think about prayer and protest and resistance. My issue with Donnie McClurkin was when he said, you know, your vote is the thing you need to use. That is the evidence of your protest against an administration like number 45. And I think part of our work in reimagining resistance 
is making multiple connections back to a breadth of protest. As you both said, protest has always been one part of a wheel of resistance that includes many different aspects. Electoral politics is one cog in an important wheel. Protest is such an important part because it allows a gathering of people. I think about the aftermath of the election and sitting in my home in Ghana and just stunned, you know, just really stunned and silenced in shock that this had really happened. And it took a while to just process it. And then wanting to hear how other people are doing, what's happening, what are people feeling, what does this mean? And then being stunned gave way to rage. And then it's like, where do you channel the rage in order that you don't become unproductive? And so I think our historical models of resistance have encompassed many things. And part of reimagining resistance, I think, is reaching back into that resistance historical archive, drawing from it and then adding to it. Because one question I want to ask you both is what if part of our massive collections in these massive, particularly black churches, at a time when I always say electoral politics is a limited power, but it is a power nonetheless, and one that we don't use enough. And I know, Glinda, this is so specifically your work. So what if in this moment of resistance, tithing became a an, an kind of an avenue of political finance, campaign financing, when it is so hard, particularly for women of color and black women, to raise money for their campaigns? What if tithing and the church became a way to elevate a community's interests by being willing to put up candidates and doing the work of financing them? I mean, they're building buildings and doing all kinds of other stuff. What if part of our resistance model was to engage in electoral politics in a way that could support and serve a community directly. Glinda Carr, your thoughts? Looking at history and starting at the civil rights movement, churches took up offerings to be able to fuel the movement, but also, you know, ensure that there was money ready to bail out individuals. So historically, the church has encouraged the congregation to finance the movement. The question is, in the 21st century model, how do we actually build true independent black political power? And within that is building a pipeline of ready, qualified, and able individuals that are interested in stepping off the sidelines and running for office. But if we're going to encourage people to step off the sidelines to run for office, then we obviously have to support them, one, with our volunteer to hours, but our money. So I should say, taking out of context the inability for obviously a church, which is a 501c3, to finance expressly political activism as part of the tax code, I do think that our churches and our faith institutions do have a role to talk about the importance of our community and political stewardship. So yes, we, we obviously will talk about tithing and the importance of our religious stewardship, but the importance of rotating our dollars to build Black political power. And that means shifting some of our consumer power to ensuring that we are funding not only organizations that are doing the political advocacy, but encouraging individuals the importance of utilizing our finances to ensure that we are reshaping who are sitting at these decision-making tables. Sophia Gendetto. I also think that as we're talking about reimagining resistance and how that can look in the church community, one reason why we're here in this political moment has been because of the lack of political education. And churches are very 
well positioned to not only teach people about their rights, but also just the basic how does the political process work and having discussions around policy. And I also think it's really important for them to facilitate conversations about being able to analyze certain things. And I'm thinking in particular, uh, being able to not conflate the performance of Christianity by political figures with a genuine concern for the interests of the members of the church. So having Melania Trump opening a rally with the Lord's Prayer pandas to a community in a way that goes against the rhetoric that Trump is everyone's president. And honestly, he's not even their president. So he, he lobbied for their vote. He got it from a lot of them. And he will attempt to do a few things that will resonate with their moral register. But that doesn't mean he cares about their livelihood in, in other respects. It doesn't mean he cares that they're insured, that their homes are secure, that their water is clean, that they can afford to educate their children. And, and this is especially true in communities of color. And religious political extremists have always been able to use certain issues to appeal to the more conservative segments of the black church and Latino evangelicals who also tend to be immigrants, things like abortion, things like LGBT rights. They have used those issues to build a wedge and make them vote against their larger interests. And so I think the church is very much positioned to start to complicate their members' thinkings about these issues and separating folks who will perform Christianity for their vote, but then on the ground and act policies that really harm their families and communities. We certainly know when it comes to American politics, hardcore evangelical Christians are spectacularly prolific at the performance of Christianity and the, the practice of absolute utter hypocrisy and racism and bigotry and sexism and put them all together. And that is definitely what you create. I also reject the ways in which we can be lulled into a sense of, quote unquote, being Christian as a means of supporting a president whose policy and practice does not support millions of people in that country. And I, and I say globally, because for so many of us, I mean, if I was back in the States, I'm an immigrant black woman. I think of all the Ghanaians who are immigrant black people across the United States and how the rolling out of these policies will practically impact their lives. And even as they go to church on a regular basis and go forward in prayer, and then think about resistance. What does it mean when you have, and traditionally have had certainly American presidents who have always used and leaned on Christianity and relied on being able to go into church communities to practice a kind of, of politics that speaks to what I call the moments in the Bible that don't grapple with the reality of the fight and the blood and the pain and the harm and the valleys. And so I'm sitting in Ghana where I think about charlatan pastors and the way in which religion is used to strip the vulnerable of even that part of their resistance and sexually exploit them. I think of a place like Rwanda where the genocide was turning everybody into victims and churches were sanctuaries that turned into cemeteries. And so 
I think about these global models of how the different ways churches and places of religion have been used. And in this 21st century moment, what does political education within a sanctuary movement look like? Are we talking about a Sunday service where kids are beginning to get civics lessons and civic engagement? Because I think one of the issues, Linda, I know this is part of your work, the disconnection and the disengagement by so many communities when it comes to the political process and its power in your everyday life. So when people say, well, the vote has got nothing to do with me, that is an alternative fact. So I think about the idea of the kinds of civics lessons that show you the reason your streetlights are on is because of policy, blah, blah, blah. The reason this doesn't work is because of policy, blah, blah, blah. But I also think about the idea of churches building stronger relationships with the existing political powers within their communities. So there's a much, much closer engagement around how those people function in those communities. Because traditionally, electoral officials within local communities only go where the power and the vote lies and everybody else they literally ignore. And so often that means vulnerable people, black people, brown people, and poor people. That's so often what it means. Glinda Carr. Totally agree. I do think, obviously, elected officials will go to churches on election years. I do, I do think as we look at the role of the church in this movement-building moment, that there's a real opportunity for our faith leaders to truly harness the power of the pulpit and the power of the pews. But I think it has to also be, as you mentioned, Esther, something that is a long-term strategy. It's a 365-day, every-year ability for our churches to not only be the spiritual epicenter of our communities, but also the civic and political convening place where several things can happen. One, it is on any given Saturday or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whenever you worship, an opportunity for us to educate our communities about the, the, the issues of the day. So oftentimes we will invite elected officials to speak at congregations during an election cycle. I used to work for an elected official, and one of the things I think we were very proud of was the notion that on his schedule, we ensured that every year, regardless of it was an election year, that he would go and ask clergy leaders for him to be able to address the congregation on issues that were affecting the community, on issues of public education, immigration. So I think it's important for there to be an olive branch both ways, for our clergy members to ask their representatives to actually come and speak. I mean, at this time, you know, uh, Congress is out on recess this week, and there are town halls happening across the country. Here's an opportunity for clergy members to actually reach out to their representatives in Washington, but also in their state houses and saying, hey, my congregation is concerned. My congregation doesn't know what all of this means for them. Can you come and provide a perspective? Kind of hold them accountable. You may even have a representative that you disagree on his or her stance, but being able to utilize our congregations and worship houses as a place to disseminate information, but also an opportunity for us to educate, particularly in the black community, the power of our vote. Again, you can't harness power you don't know you have. And an average American, and particularly the work that we do around African-American women, will say that their vote doesn't matter. And obviously, in this 2016 election cycle, clear uh, understanding that your vote does matter. And it's complex. Yes, you start talking about Hillary won the popular vote and not understanding the electoral piece. But there are places across this country where the powers could have tipped a different way had we actually really understood the power of the Black voting bloc. Sophia Quintero. When they're speaking to their membership, it, it just simply speak the truth about very public records of 
these folks that are seeking their support, and I'm thinking in particular these group of pastors who have come out in support of Jeff Sessions and very explicitly saying, this man is being charged with being a racist and there's no evidence of that. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Don't talk about what he says. Talk about what he's done. This is a man that, when he was a prosecutor in the 80s, he prosecuted three activists for registering black voters in Alabama. And they were doing things that were completely under the protection of the Voting Rights Act, like helping people get to polls, assisting elderly voters. And meanwhile, at the same so not only was he actively going after people who were trying to empower black voters, he also declined to investigate the very same activity that was going on among groups that were supporting white candidates. So tell the truth about his record. Stop talking about what's in his heart <laughs> and talk about his record. Just speak that truth can make all the difference. I think about that. We've had this now series of pastors, predominantly black and male, meeting Trump in support of him, despite a rhetoric that would be anti those very same pastors when number 45 goes into a church in Cleveland and talks about the importance of expanding stop and frisk. Every single one of those pastors who supported him are in the line of fire of that very policy, which has been declared unconstitutional for a reason. In New York, that's exactly what happened. And I think that allowing religion and rhetoric to privilege reality is one of the issues that these black pastors who support someone like the Attorney General Jeff Sessions is one of the major issues. And the, the opium that is religion too often abandons facts for the feel-good power that pastors offer through their oratory, however persuasive that is. But somebody like Sessions, like his record goes back, Coretta Scott King wrote the letter. This is a matter of historical archive. And so then it makes me think about this marriage of education and congregation and the practical ways that that kind of organizing not just can happen, but has to happen in this era of number 45 in order to change things. Closing comments from you first, Sophia. I myself will be paying much more attention to the sanctuary movement here in the U.S. and amplifying it. And it's just been very inspiring for me, even though I have not considered myself a uh, Christian in decades, a lot of the reason why I stayed from any kind of spiritual development has been because of the way spirituality, whether it's religion or not, has often been used to be apolitical. So to see this resurgence of people practicing their spirituality in very political ways is just really inspiring. And I'm very glad that we had this conversation. Closing thought to you, Glinda Carr. This past December, I had an opportunity to spend a week in Israel and a little time in Palestine for the day. And, you know, as you know, it's a volatile region, but it's also a region and particularly Israel, a country where you have the meeting of three major religions, right? So on one evening, 
I had dinner with a reformed rabbi and lunch with a Palestinian Muslim leader to dinner with the Ethiopian Jewish women. And one thing that I can say for that trip, which was very enlightening for me for a variety of reasons, was speaking to a woman who lives right on the Gaza Strip. So obviously is involved in, you know, a volatile region where there may be mortar shells and bombs. And she had such light in her heart, Jewish woman. And it was coming right off the election. And I shared a trip with a bunch of people that were very concerned about kind of the state of the country and feeling hopelessness. And we asked, why did she have this light in her heart? And she said, because when I lose my hope, I go and find it again. And I think that's what our religious institutions have historically done in this country, providing sanctuary, providing vision, providing a space for us to gather. That in in a space where individuals may be feeling very tense about the direction of this country and the direction of the global world, that we have to remember that when we seek hope, we will find it again. That was our continuing discussion series, Reimagining Resistance in This Era of Number 45. You're listening to This Spin, a one-hour weekly international all-women-of-color podcast. I'm your host, Esther Almar. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quindero and Glinda Carr. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, Iowa, South Carolina, and Georgia. We are on air in Ghana on Star FM 103.5 and in London on ABN UK Radio. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on SoundCloud and iTunes. Muslim hip-hop artist like Aliyah Sharif wants the world to understand that she knows her purpose. I don't trust nobody but Allah in my family. My mama taught me to be something like a veteran. First you got a better within, then you win. I know my purpose, know what my worth is. And it's more than any gimmick, they can him up. Or any bigger they can give up. I know my purpose, know what my worth is. 
time to wake up I know you stuck Distracted by plastic Times is real tough They said we broke and we batted By honey years of corrupt Stolen from Africa Stepped on the middle passage in cuffs So then what happened? Trapped us, packed us in the middle of the sea Had us on a boat Named Jesus See, this was child slavery Don't get it twisted We lifted our fishing Escaped the wicked Tried to take our religion Forces to become that kind of Christians With no permission Gave us the white God depiction Made us hate our own skin Now some turn to bleaching While others said we gods But we really meant them Many women and children Have been in the same system They made it easy to sin Gotta win that battle within You either sink or you swim A paddle to you traveling They damaging black people Die every day like back when Every 28 is this the real meaning of slay Free Palestine Into genocide Recognize me in the end times Peep the size I know my for the second of this week's discussions in our series Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45. Reproductive Justice and Resistance. What is the state and fate of reproductive justice sexual health under this president? What is the state of our sexual health nation? The defining legislation around abortion in America is Roe v. Wade. Norma McCorvey, who was the Jane Roe plaintiff in the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case that legalized abortion, has just died. Abortion was illegal in Texas in almost all cases when Norma learned she was pregnant back in 1969. Now, the legal battle took three years. And although she won, of course, her baby had been born and she ended up giving up her child for adoption. The 1973 landmark case offered millions of American women a choice in their reproductive world. And while choice should be the foundation, the issue is always reduced solely and specifically to abortion, and there are conflicting perspectives and opinions. Under number 45, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, which has been offering reproductive health care for 100 years to women, children, and men, will be stripped of its funding. Dismantling the right to an abortion is now an explicit objective for both the new administration and the Republican-led Congress. So here's Cecile Richards of Planned Parenthood addressing the Women's March on Washington and calling on women and their families to lobby their electoral representatives and refuse to roll back history. Reproductive rights are human rights. You need to know that starting this week, Congress is going to be moving quickly to try to pass restrictions on reproductive access, and we cannot let them. You need to call your member of Congress, call your senator, and say, we will not go back. One of us can be dismissed, two of us can be ignored, but together, we are a movement, and we are unstoppable. In the first month of number 45's presidency, GOP lawmakers have put forward measures to pull federal family planning funds from Planned Parenthood and repeal the Affordable Care Act, including its requirement that insurance plans cover contraceptives. They've also introduced bills that would make abortion illegal after 20 weeks of pregnancies and would ban the standard abortion method used by doctors in the second trimester. Number 45's vice president, is Mike Pence. He was a former governor of Indiana and signed some of the country's strictest abortion restrictions into law. Now, they included a measure that you have to bury or cremate an aborted fetus and a ban on abortions due to a fetal anomaly. 
In a September 2016 speech, Pence told an evangelical conference in Washington, D.C. that he wanted to send Roe v. Wade to, quote, the ash heap of history, unquote. Just listen. I believe we will see Roe v. Wade consigned to the ash heap of history where it belongs. I promise. Rolling back choice. So let's crunch some numbers. Globally, there are 20 million unsafe abortions every year, 55,000 per day, and 95% are done in so-called developing nations. I'm talking to you from one of them, Ghana. It looks like parts of America will be joining that number as well if what this government wants to do goes ahead. So we talk about pregnancy within marriage or as a point of shame. Those are the two specific extremes. And sexual health has been limited to teenage pregnancy and specifically preventing abortion. Religion and shame are two powerful influences on this issue. But behind the ideology, the numbers and the politics and the white authoritarian men are women, teenage girls, their lives, their stories, their futures. In an HBO documentary, women share their stories and perspectives on abortion, and it's called Abortion, Stories Women Tell. Here's the trailer. I'm 17, and I'm having a little girl. How is it that you don't want her, but you are forcing me to keep her? Honestly, if I'd had a child with that man, I, I'd have killed myself. Dads and moms, come out of this place. This place is a place of murder. Are you going to take care of these babies? Go to the public aid office and tell them to quit having babies. You worried about somebody else's business. It's not I just want to graduate high school and then go to college. What are you going to do about all the women that need abortions? I can't believe that I am a citizen of a country that says it's okay to kill a baby. I look at it helping a young woman get on with her life. People telling their stories is so important because we keep those things locked inside of ourselves and they kill us. And each year there is a pro-life march and these are women and their families who share stories and hold up signs saying, quote, I regret my abortion, unquote. And in a national tour and conversational project called Pro Voice, women create space to talk about their abortion journey, their conflicted emotions, the pain, the sadness, the expectation, their hurt, and sometimes regret, then relief, and back again. Here are some of their voices. When I got pregnant, I had nowhere to turn to, nobody who I can, could ask about their experience. I always said that I was pro-choice for everyone else, but pro-life for myself. I still wanted to believe that my principles somehow, my like fixed philosophical convictions would win out over the reality of my life. And that was not the case. All I wanted when I was going through my experience was someone to relate to, um, someone to tell me that they had gone through it and to like be honest about what the experience was for them. Having to go through those mixed feelings with all the messages about what I should feel, um, was hard. I felt isolated. Now abortion's been legal for 40 years and we have all of these women and all of these stories and all of these situations that we're not hearing about because we're still fighting about the same thing that's never really gonna go away. 
Most people don't love or hate abortion. Most people are thinking about themselves and their own lives and their own story and we're missing out on all of that. We're missing out on what abortion really is and how it really affects people. So let's talk reproductive rights and resistance in this era of number 45. Sofia Quintero, your thoughts. Thank you so much for bringing up the power of story. <laughs> because I think that if we're reimagining resistance and preserving abortion rights, I think that it's something that we could stand to make more use of. Given the visibility that Nick Corby had, it seems to me that she was strategically targeted for conversion, not only spiritually, but also politically. But it's because I suspect that, that I started to think a lot about what it must have been like for her to be young, to be poor, to be uneducated. She had to be incredibly vulnerable, especially once she was in the spotlight for this issue that is so polarizing. I try to imagine what it must have been like to have the power of someone tending to her in a very personal way. That probably was very irresistible and led to her, both her spiritual and her political conversion. And so I think that if we're to preserve abortion rights, it's incredibly important now more than ever to not underestimate the power of story as a tool of resistance. Yes, abortion is a legislative battle. It's a policy fight. But it's also the case that abortion rights are also an ongoing front in the culture war. And we have this ongoing, narrow perception of what kind of woman has an abortion. And while the frame of my body, my choice, has its power, I think it would be just as powerful to start to complicate that narrative. There certainly are women for whom the decision to have an abortion, for whatever reason, is not fraught with a range of conflicting emotions, and they should not be shamed. That's the power of my body, my choice. But the fact is that for many women, the decision to terminate the pregnancy isn't that simple. And I'm not just talking logistically, but also emotionally. And, and that for most women, it's a very complicated decision, even when it is the best decision. So sometimes in this discussion, we forget that sometimes the right thing to do is often not the easy thing to do. And our conversation about the abortion experience could honor that complexity by being transparent, which is very ironic because a lot of the way abortion rights have been won and defended has been on the grounds of privacy. This is not to say that people have to come forward with their stories, but I think we should allow space for women to come forward with their stories and to not shy away from the emotional contours of the circumstances that compel some women to decide to terminate a pregnancy. Especially because since we often make the argument that if pro-choice people genuinely value life, then they wouldn't also attack things like affordable health care and public education. And that's a very valid, compelling argument that I think would really be bolstered if women's abortion stories were told that when women can come forward with the circumstances that made them decide that an abortion was the best decision for them, then we can start to connect the dots. We can start to bring greater attention and really make concrete the role that poverty plays in their decision, the role that the violence that they're surviving and things of that nature. We start to connect those dots between reproductive rights and public health and criminal justice. And then we can strengthen our argument about how poor life can you be when you want to force women to take pregnancy to childbirth while 
attacking policies and institutions and dismantling safety nets that facilitate her ability to care for that child. It makes that rhetoric more concrete. Glinda Kerr. Yeah, as we fight to roll back literally 50 years of progress, for me, a three-pronged, you know, rollback, right? So we are fighting attempts to roll back civil rights and civil liberties. We're fighting to roll back all the gains we've made around women's rights. And we continue to fight rollbacks for voting rights. At the center of this discussion around Roe v. Wade and kind of where we stand both from a legislative perspective with the work to roll back many of the gains we've made in Congress, We also now have an executive that has one of his first executive orders was to roll back the global gag rule. And I think what made it such a visual rollback was when he signed the global gag rule rollback surrounded by white men. And that's a very kind of visual approach to show who's trying to make decisions around women's reproductive rights. And then we have to also look at the role that our states are playing around reproductive rights and reproductive justice. So there's work that needs to be done. I wholeheartedly do agree the importance of storytelling and and reframing the discussion around abortion in the 21st century. It is still a very white-framed, second-wave feminist discussion on how we ought to be framing the discussions about protecting the right for women to make a choice about their reproductive health. But to broaden the discussion in addition to just the rollback on abortion is the defunding of Planned Parenthood and kind of how that is going to impact women, regardless of where you live in this country and regardless of kind of your social economic spectrum. But low-income, poor women of color and low-income rural white women are going to be disproportionately affected by the rollback and the defunding of Planned Parenthood if they move forward on the federal and state level. There are specific contradictions when it comes to America and this kind of fundamentalist approach to abortion that always make me so annoyed, specifically around the hypocrisies of going so hard, being anti-abortion, and yet being unwilling to be able to create or pass an affordable childcare legislation. The annihilation of early start education programs that would actually nourish and help the young lives that those Republicans and conservatives seem so committed to saving. So I'm always struck specifically by the depth of hypocrisy of a political ideology that is so focused on the unborn and could give a damn about what is happening to the, those who are already here. And that is consistently problematic. I'm talking to you from Ghana. And here, so much of our sexual health is around the issue of teenage pregnancies. There's so little discussion around abortion. And legal abortion happens only in very limited circumstances around rape or incest or what we call defilement, which is essentially child rape. There's a region in Ghana called Brongahafo, and in 2015, in the first six months, there were 280 cases of what was described as teenage pregnancies, but the girls who were pregnant were actually ages 10 to 14. So for me in Ghana, we have a child rape epidemic issue, and the sexual health crisis that needs to be explored, that needs to be engaged, is specifically around men and their relationship and their expectation of women's bodies and stories and the power of what those girls are going through in the carrying of these babies to term could equally be a 
powerful, powerful tool in transforming how we think about sexual health, how we think about sex, how we think about abortion, and how we think about women's bodies in this moment. I think this is a global issue. The statistics I gave were global statistics. If you're having 55,000 illegal abortions per day, I'm thinking about the health implications of that illegality, what it means for those women emotionally. I'm always irritated by this term pro-life. I have yet to meet any woman who is pro-death, who thinks about an abortion that way. And I think that highly charged emotional language all serves to ratchet up what is an already deeply emotional and conflicting reality. And as you said, Sophia, women don't feel the same way about abortion, whether they've had them or whether they have not. And so I always think it's this idea that you can paint this issue with broad brushstrokes is the rhetoric of white men who have never dealt with intimately or faced the reality of what it means to walk down this particular path. What else does resistance need to look like when it comes to this moment? And as you said, Glenda Carr, the rolling back of these huge gains in history that were so hard fought. Sofia Quintero. I think about my own situation and walk my talk here around story because part of one of the things that they're doing, for example, is they want, they've been at the Planned Parenthood forever and they want to defund Planned Parenthood. Well, I'm a breast cancer survivor. And at the time that I was diagnosed, I was uninsured. And what enabled me to discover that I had breast cancer was going to Planned Parenthood because I was uninsured. And being able to go to Planned Parenthood and have that accessible, affordable health care. So it's not for Planned Parenthood. I wouldn't. I might not be speaking to you here right now. I might have found out that I had breast cancer way after it was treatable. And so I definitely think that one way we have to reimagine resistance and support for, for abortion rights, I do agree with you that language is powerful, language is everything, and we need to change the narrative starting with the language that we use. And we, start to, we have to draw more together to show how these issues are interconnected. Because I've never had an abortion, but it's not for Planned Parenthood, I might not be speaking to you right now. And Planned Parenthood is being attacked because it enables women to have safe, affordable abortions. So a lot of people are not safe if this happens. And I was really struck by the article you shared with us where Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued that abortion rights became an easy target because it did too much too fast. I actually wonder the opposite, that if it wasn't an incremental piece of legislation is exactly why it's been able to withstand these relentless attacks for so long. And we've talked about this before on The Spin. I've always maintained that the biggest vulnerability of Roe v. Wade was the framing of abortion as a matter of privacy than, say, as an issue of public health. So I think we need to start to look at what are the possibilities, risks, strategies we can use to start to move away from framing the reproductive justice conversation as a matter of private and to broadening, that it's not just about abortion, but that if you attack abortion rights, you're also attacking a lot of other women's health concerns. Closing thought to you, Glinda Carr. I mean, what does re- resistance look like? It needs to look like America. And if it's going to look like America, we need to do, I believe, three things, right? We talk about intersectionality and progressive politics as relates to race and gender. 
But if we're really going to, you know, build out an America as good as it's promised, we have to look at the intersectionality of the issues and kind of how, if you have an administration that is trying to dismantle pieces of American progress, that those pieces are interrelated. So if you are denying health care or denying the ability for people to make a fair and livable wage, that that is connected to ensuring that we have stable communities. If you're breaking up families and not having a very comprehensive immigration policy, that not only are you breaking up families, you're, again, creating instable communities. So we, I think, need to have a very coordinated plan, and that coordinated plan has to be intersectional. What I like over the last two months of seeing, you know, uh, national groups and, and local groups probably working more together than we've seen in recent years of not only organizing mass protests, but really having a very coordinated plan that includes a broader message as well as a broader strategy to talk to our elected officials. What does resistance look like? It looks like a democracy that looks like our country. So we need to reconfigure what decision-making tables look like across this country and encourage more diverse voices in that diverse voices based on ethnicity, race, gender, social economic background, but also on ideology to consider stepping off the sidelines and running for office. And finally, what does the resistance look like? Each one of us have, have a role to play and we each have a stake to play. So you may not be someone that wants to tie up your boot and hit the streets and protest. You may not be that person that wants to schedule a lobbying visit with your elected official. You clearly may not be a person that wants to put on your running shoes to run for office, but you may be that person that wants to donate a pair of shoes to support, meaning taking the money that you would have used to buy a pair of shoes to donate to an institution that's doing the work. So find your role in the resistance and be a part of it in a way that is meaningful for you. Obviously, many hands make light work and we all have a role to play. Find your role in the resistance. This fight seeks to eliminate choices, fight for and protect choice. Everybody has to have one. Everybody got choices. Opian in your person, you stand for your own. Say me kanda won't feel ya bombardin cano. So we need your one so I bombardin say yes. Everybody got choices. This will be an in your person, you stand for your own. Say me kanda won't feel ya bombardin cano. So we need your one so I bombardin say yes. That's a one pack. Sabo shana we need your one so I. That's a one pack. That's a one shana say we need your one. Yo, listen, that's a one pack. That's a one shana say we need your one. Now, that's a one pack. For your own, say me canna won't feel ya, but more than so we need your so I won't say yes. Everybody got choices. That's your hour. Thank you to Sofia Quintero and Glinda Carr. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Take care. I want to hear myself. <laughs> Thank you to the spin production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. 
This is Reimagining Resistance in the Era of Number 45, a discussion series on The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armar. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.